It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, This is when we bring together award-winning journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 2070s.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And our panelists today, Annette Hinkle, who is uh, the arts and living editor uh, for the Express News Group. Hey, Annette. Hi, how are you, Joe? Steve Wick, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning, I have to stick that in there, Steve, because, you know, gives us a little gravitas. Uh, The Pulitzer Prize winning uh, executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Steve. Good morning, Joe. Nice to see you. Thank you for raising the level of the discourse here. And uh, Denise Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of uh, Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning who also raises the level of discourse wherever she is. So it's good to have good to have her here this morning, too. So um, a lot of stuff to talk about. I want to start on the North Fork, Steve, with Southhold. Uh, there's been some uh, new developments up there. It's been kind of interesting for the town. What's going on up there? Well, the new year started with a new town board. We now have uh, three Democrats and three Republicans. And um, it's really kind of neat to watch. Um, they're starting to tackle some big issues. They have some jobs to fill. Uh, Bill Duffy, the town attorney, left to go to work for the legislature. Uh, so this town board, again, three to th- three Democrats, three Republicans, uh, needs to pick a new town attorney. Um, they have two what they describe as very capable attorneys in that office now that have been there for a while. So they may just pick one of them. But I kind of think they'll, they'll probably go outside and find someone uh, acceptable to both parties. And they're starting to wrestle with the issue that, again, I've, I've only been at the at these papers for four years, but uh, apparently for quite a long time, there's been what to do with the town justice court. If you've been in town hall on uh, justice court days, they just take the meeting room and turn it into a justice court. They put a metal detector in the hallway. It's it's it hasn't been successful in terms of security and p- people coming in to answer all kinds of uh, traffic and other issues and bringing prisoners in through the through the side door. So for as long as, again, I've, I've only been here four years, but it certainly goes back before that. They've been trying to find some way to build one. And they seem now to be talking about a spot of land, a, a plot of land on Peconic Lane in Peconic uh, behind the rec center uh, to build a, a new justice court. Um, most, some of the town board members this week spoke very favorably of that idea, said it's, it's time to stop the expression they used, kicking the can down the road and just do it. So I think um, this year may be the year that the town decides and begins construction on, the, on a whole new justice court, which, Bill, as you know, in Riverhead, has just been a chronic problem with how they do it in Riverhead. Yeah, I'm curious, Steve, you say the board is now 3-3. Um, is there any early insights into whether that's going to mean uh, a more difficult time getting stuff done uh, at South Hold Town Board? Or, or I would say no, Joe. It seems to me that it's it's actually looks pretty good. Um, the two new Democrats on the board, Brian Mealy um, and um, Greg Dorosky, uh, they're both similar, really good personalities. They seem to have a lot of uh, of ability to get along with the Republicans who are on the board, particularly the supervisor, Scott Russell. But keep in mind that this all started on a really bad note last week when on the town Zoom meeting for that first town board meeting, someone typed in some very racist and even threatening language uh, directed at Brian Mealy, who is black. Mm. Interestingly enough, you can see it in our paper, um, Chief Flatley, the South Old Police Chief, referred it to the DA, to the county police department, and they've said uh, that it's not uh, doesn't raise to the level of hate speech um, as bad as it was. So really? that's how it's this more, that's how more like trolling, right? This is- with some really ugly language directed at Brian, and in again, you just. You just sit back and think, oh, my God, we're in 2021, a black man, very capable, gets elected to the town board. And on his very first day sitting up there, look what someone types at the bottom of the screen. Uh, Really, Is is there any indication? Was that a a local 
the the trolls who came in and disrupted the meeting? Was it local folks or because I know that that this has been an issue at public meetings that are being held uh, virtually all over the country, and it seems like sometimes it's just random groups from well outside our area who are coming in just to do just to disrupt. I think in this case, Joe, they, that most of the local wisdom seems to be it is someone local because before that, someone disrupted the anti-bias task force meeting with similar language. Mm. So it's someone who knew there was an anti-bias task force meeting coming up and did the same thing there. And then not that long afterwards, went after Brian as, as he was seated on the new town board. Mm. My guess would be it's someone other people seem to be thinking the same is that it's someone local. That's a little more disturbing. <laughs> I think. That's really can unfortunate. They, can they trace who, who is signed in, logged into a meeting like that? Well, we've like asked a hundred times, and um, so far we haven't gotten. I mean, I would think common sense would say they must have be able to figure out who it was. But um, again, the, the DA, the county police department said, as bad as it was, it doesn't rise to the level of hate speech. Therefore, it's not illegal. Steve, when that happened, what what was the reaction? How did the the folks um, running the meeting deal with it? Did they block that person out as soon as they saw it, or did, well, the, no. did those messages stay up for a long time? It, it stayed up for a while before they people began to catch on as to what was going on. Um, in our story this week, the, the really there's some really interesting quotes from Scott Russell who really condemned it, and he, he thought that Brian Mealy's response was a little bit too. Uh, um, too soft. In other words, he said something like, Brian is just being too polite about this. This was really disgusting. Um, but the, the town now has to figure out how to better control public access to that those Zoom meetings and to react a whole lot quicker than they reacted this time. So I, I've noticed that some of the public meetings that I've attended, um, and, and I, I, depending on the version of Zoom that they're using and what options they use, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to, I mean, a meeting that I went to the other night, I, I would not have been able to to um, put anything in, in the chat. So I'm, I'm thinking that that the town probably just has to kind of review their, um, you know, review their their Zoom, um, you know, policies and all that and, and, and how they're how they're hosting the meeting and just be able to turn turn that's the chat off if, if you know, if that's an option and, and train then, people to jump on it quicker. Uh, right. Have yeah. More access to it. Right. It was a little too free form, free floating. Yeah. And those things are probably going to be over pretty quickly here. But I guess in the larger sense, um, what really struck people and, and us in particular, um, we printed a bunch of letters for, about it as well, is really a black man, Brian Mealy, more than capable of really strong history locally, um, really extraordinarily well respected, gets elected. He was elected wasn't appointed, yeah. elected the town board. And this is what someone says. Really, uh, I guess it's the age we're living in, which uh, could not be uh, any uglier nationally, regionally, and now it would seem locally. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm not so shocked by that myself, like I, that that happened. I mean, it's absolutely reprehensible, but um, I'm not that shocked that it happened. I mean, there's... Uh, you know, it's a largely white community. And, um, you know, not that long ago, there was a guy driving around Southold with a uh, Confederate flag, flying a Confederate flag from his pickup truck. And um, when I wrote a story reporting on it, um, it, you can't believe the grief I got from people in the community for even, you know, mentioning it, that I was being biased and, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera, uh, for, for doing that. And, and I mean, you know, it, it's out there. There's, there's plenty of it in all over the North Fork and in Riverhead. So, I mean, I don't think it takes some outsider trolling random meetings. And I think Bill makes a good point that um, they, they really ought to, there's really no reason to have like a chat thing going on in a public meeting. I mean, people are recognized to speak and they can be allowed to, you know, have their mic opened and right. and speak to address the board. Like, I don't get what the point of a chat is in a context like that. And that exposes you to, you know, that kind of thing. 
Um, I also think if someone's monitoring the meeting, you can drop someone from a virtual meeting like that when they start to, right. to yeah. misbehave. So, but Denise, I wanted to talk too about the fact that this is going to be the fact of life for the for the near future. This week, Governor Kathy Hochul signed legislation that was introduced. It was co-written by Assemblyman Fred Thiel, who represents the East End, and it basically extends the ability. Um, for public uh, boards to hold meetings virtually while we're continuing with the pandemic. We, we're going to have to come to grips with how this affects public meetings moving forward, right? Because the, the talk, and, and Fred Thiel talked about it in the, in the article that we wrote, that, that the hope is that there'll be some type of hybrid moving forward, that there are some positives about having the virtual meetings. It's really in, enhanced the public's ability to sit in on, on meetings makes it a lot more convenient, even provides an outlet for them to, to give some feedback. There are downsides as we're talking about, but this is something we're going to we're going to have to come to terms with this. Right. It's now part of the landscape of what public meetings are. Absolutely. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I really don't. I think it's a really good thing because it expands the ability, it expands access for people who might not otherwise be able to come to a meeting because they have small children or even if they're at work. We've had people testify during a public hearing from their work because they took time to, you know, out of their day to do that because they have meetings during the workday. So, um, I, you know, I think government needs to kind of like local government, especially needs to kind of step up their abilities when it comes to technology, I think is like all the way around and to how to run these meetings. We see that over and over again in, in Riverhead and other places. So I think it's the, the anonymity is the issue, you know, like, you know, how at the paper we did away with comments mm -hmm. on, um, on our websites because of everybody was, you know, hiding behind, these made up names to be really insulting, like things they would never say face to face. So it seems like the the boards need to come up with a way to really identify who's speaking out at public meetings instead of making it kind of an open door policy and yeah. letting anyone weigh in. But if you think about a small town, um, Denise and everyone, I mean, in a small town, can't, a taxpayer should not be allowed to say something at the bottom of the screen. If not going to be there, if, it, if virtual is the way of the future because of pandemics, um, and one person or two people, whoever these these mutts are, are they going to ruin it for everyone's ability to type in and say, I want to know where the money's going or why did well, you do this or why did you do that? Well, I think like legitimate commenting is one thing, but allowing everybody to whisper at the bottom of the page is I mean, you don't really you can't really stand up in a, you know, in a meeting unless you, I usually have to state your name and and your issue. The idea of, of not doing it with without without providing your doing it without providing your name, I think is um is something that doesn't really fly at a lot of meetings now right right and the zoom meetings that i've gone to have the option as denise mentioned where, where you you raise your hand and and then the moderator of the meeting or whoever's in the clerk or whoever is, is conducting the meeting can then bring you in to ask that question does that give a lot of control to to the board it, it does but at the same time, you can't just get up in the middle of a live meeting and, and ask a question. I mean, there's a public comment period and, yeah, and all that. So, so the question I have with, with this open meetings law, and, and I think, you know, Fred, Fred Dale brought it up as well, is so, so you, you have all these virtual audience members. Do you allow that at the same time for for the board members, if you've got five board members who have second homes in Vermont or Florida or somewhere else, are they then conducting the meeting from from those other locations, um, as well as having your your audience members virtual, everybody's virtual? Or do you try to get to that hybrid that Joe mentioned where you have, you know, you have the, the board members live in the meeting and then you have virtual um, participation and I can see the benefit of, of both. If you've got a small village like Sagaponic, say, where you've got you, you want to open up government participation to all your residents, but all your residents aren't full time residents, it gives them an option from their second, third, or fourth homes to to participate in government and, and be on that board. Um, on, on the opposite end of that spectrum, I, I think you know you you have to. Um, people have to have the ability to to kind of face to face address, you know, address their their government and their board members. So I'm wondering what you guys think about about that element of it. I, I, th I mean, 
there's a provision. I'm pretty sure I was just going to the page now, but there's I think there's a provision in the open meetings law. I don't know if this legislation changed that provision or not, but that says that if they're um, if if a person is participating remotely, um, they're and and this was suspended in the by the executive orders that started with the pandemic, but that they they need to be um, disclose their location uh-huh. or something like that where they are. Um, there had been talk that it should be a public location too, so that yeah. Yeah, but but that obviously isn't isn't happening, and and I I'm I'm actually really curious about this conversation because we haven't really had it about in a community that's made up in large part of people who are part time residents. Is there harm in a board member lot serving on a board and logging in from Florida in the winter seasons to participate? I, I I'm curious. Here's I'm what actually, the law currently says, and it's kind of like a funny thing. I think sort of. I, a public body that uses video conferencing to conduct its meetings shall provide an opportunity for the public to attend, listen, and observe at any site at which a member participates. Mm. So in theory, you're, yeah. you you have to have the public into your house in Winter Haven, Florida, when you're logged into a, a local ZBA meeting. As a, It as kind a of discourages member. that, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, Steve, is... is are we going down a slippery slope here where we have people logging into meetings from elsewhere to make decisions about local uh, zoning issues, things like that? It, it seems to me that um, if you're running for re-election and your opponent can say uh, you, you, you went to 16 meetings last winter from your home in Fort Lauderdale, <laughs> I would think that would be a sizable campaign issue. It does seem like I, I would. It just seems really arrogant to me that you get elected to a town board and then you spend the winter somewhere else and then sit at your coffee table or by your pool in Florida and log into a meeting and say, no, I don't want to vote for that. Uh, that strikes me as really, really awful. Again, I think it's something we're going to have to deal with moving forward because of the the prominence of, of the virtual meetings. And, and at, I, I wanted to just before we leave the topic, touch on the fact that we the internet and social media, it's, it's, I've had this conversation many times about how there are varying levels of public, the public's ability to be involved in discourse. And we talked but before we shut down commenting on our website. I always used to use the analogy that commenting on our website is like a conversation at the bar. And it's not the same level that you expect if, from if someone. It was, if it was the Bordy Barn, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> but it, but that commentary, we don't hold it to the same level that we do, say, if you're speaking to a public board, which would be sort of akin to a letter to the editor, that kind of thing, where you're signing your name and you're, it's a little more formal. But I feel like this is all out the door now. And the the low level of social media and the uh, the uh, convenience that, it, that the internet provides, but also the anonymity it provides is really just wrecking our discourse across the board. Is that fair? Do you think? I, I, I just, I, I cannot understand electing someone to a small town, town board, let's say South Hole, And then the person says, um, I'm going uh, to Wyoming for a month to ski, but I'll have my computer with me. Yeah. As, as walking away from your responsibilities. And but, yet, but- but if you have somebody that wants to be involved in government and I'm playing devil's advocate and wants to be committed and wants to be on a town board, but they have a second home and, and they know that three months out of the year um, total, they're, they're away from their home. Should that person who is committed to to, you know, to their village or to their town or, or whatever and wants to serve, are they then prohibited? Or do they have to fly home, you know, once once a week if they're out of town to, to be on that board? Does that lessen the pool of of people who who can serve on a town board, village board, whatever? Especially especially as so much of us can now work remotely, it's become right. sort of uh, the norm now. Let's if someone's spending the winter in a warmer clime, let's say, or somewhere anywhere else, really, I mean. Maybe they're not then going to be in touch with the problems that the people are having in their community where that they're representing during that period of time. Maybe That's like, a fair with, point uh, too. you know, snow removal or something. I don't know. I don't I don't I don't, I don't think that's 
a good thing personally. Like I want every once in a while, maybe, but you know, on a regular basis. You I had to go to Florida know. for a funeral or something, you know, a one-off kind of thing. But yeah, I would think as a campaign issue, your opponent would eat your lunch if you were gone for three months. Oh, then then oh. that leaves it, sure. And that leaves it up to the voters. And then the voters right. can come yeah, back yeah, at the yeah, end yeah. of the term and say, I don't want Steve on the board anymore because he spends too much time in Florida. I mean, imagine but also that- we've seen we've seen uh, some very small communities out here. It's hard enough to find people to run. Exactly. Um, if you eliminated everybody who spent, you know, a few months out of here in the winter, you would have boards that don't have anybody on them, I fear. But it's isn't that essentially the somebody. case now, though? I mean, yeah. they, you I mean know, it's hard enough to really find somebody to serve on a ZBA. It's a pretty uh, it's a pretty thankless job. Um, so um, I, but I, my point is, I think this, this is we are going to have to deal with these questions now because I think the mm-hmm. virtual meetings are part of it. And, and, and at the to sum up the other point I was trying to make, I think the trolls kill everything. I think trolls just okay. exist and they, they tend to, to just mess everything up. They, they live to disrupt. That's it. And I think that's that's what it's about. And that's the lesson of the first South Old Town board meeting is that there are some parasites out there who would go into a public meeting, uh, a black man on the dais, and say the things that were said. And it it obviously raises all the questions we've just been talking about. Right. But but beyond that, once again, we ask ourselves where where do we live? What kind of people live here? What do they want out of government? And whether they're they're riding around in their pickup trucks with some gigantic Trump banner off the back uh, or this kind of thing. Uh, th- this is the America we're now living in. It's disturbing it is. It's interesting questions. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's what we do here on Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe I'm Shaw. So sorry. I'm with me, the Express News Group. And uh, with me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, also of the Express News Group. And our panelists today, Annette Hinkle, who is our arts and living editor at the Express News Group. Steve Wick, who's the executive editor at the Times Review Media Group. And Denise Civiletti, who is editor of Riverhead Local. Um, let's move on. Uh, Denise, you have a story this week. Okay, so we have the luxury here of getting a little wonky from time to time. That's really? what we do. And this is, you know, the community journalism is also about getting in the weeds for people. Um, and it's important that we do that. I think, I think somebody has to do it. And you're terrific, by the way, at sorting through stories like this and making sense of it. So you have a story this week about taxes and how some big properties may be avoiding their taxes to the detriment of the town. Talk about a little bit about what you found. Well, I don't know that it's really about them avoiding taxes. I think it's, it's more about them paying more than they're, they're legally uh, required to pay, actually. Oh, is that right? Um, it's the opposite. Okay. Uh, overvaluation. Um, and um, I, I was fascinated, like a couple of months ago, I, I forget what I was looking for, but I just, I there was, the hundreds of cases, tax certiorari cases, that are like tax grievance cases that go to court, right? Um, against Riverhead in uh, on the court docket you now and online. And I was like, is this, this is crazy how many cases there are. And I just looked and every year, as you can sort by what year the cases are filed, every year there's hundreds of these cases filed. And then I'd start looking at, you know, the dockets for regarding other towns and it's basically the same kind of thing in every town. And so it's like, what is going on here? Like what, you know, it's, there's lots and lots of them are individual homeowners that grieve their taxes. And, um, but in, in Riverhead and certainly in other places as well, there are really large commercial properties that have really large lawsuits going on and um, have won or gotten either by settlement or after trial, um, extremely you know large judgments, uh, court orders that uh, require the tax assessors to reduce the assessments on these properties, and um, then therefore you know result in lower tax bills. And the court order generally gives the town ninety days to refund these back taxes. Mm-hmm. Which, if they actually had to open their, you know, cash register and do that, I think the town would go broke in a hurry. Um, 
a few years ago, there was a, a trial after a trial, a court decision um, along these lines with the um, Friars Head Golf Course, which is a really exclusive private golf club on on the North Shore in Baiting Hollow, right on the Sound. It's beautiful there. Um, and they got like a $20 million judgment, like a $20 million reduction in their wow. tax bills going back. And they're, not their tax bills, but in the valuation going back uh, 10 years because there's a multiple year of things. They're never just like one, one year. Um, and so I, it's kind of just been like, I've just wanted to find out more about this. And um, so what actually happens is that the, um, the town, the towns don't have the money to pay, you know, to refund these taxes. So this, there's a state law called the Suffolk County tax act, which requires the county to front the money basically and really? make the refund. And now the county doesn't have that kind of money either because, you know, add up all this going on in 10 towns. And um, so the county bonds for it, borrows the money by issuing bonds and then basically bills the town, but it doesn't bill the town to, so that the town has to pay. It bills the taxpayers directly. It, it charges the taxpayers directly. So there's, a line on your property tax bill because they don't want it part of it. It doesn't want they don't want to have it as part of the county. They want to separate. Levy. They want to separate yeah. it out. Yeah. So, so there's a line on the bill that says, you know, in Riverhead and all the towns are different, but in Riverhead it, it has kind of cryptic abbreviations that for real property tax law, which like who knows what that means. I mean, uh-huh. I've been living in this house, I, I don't know, 25, 28 years now, and uh, you know, I I guess I could be more careful about. My, my tax bills, but I never noticed this before. And um, so, it, and, and it, it lists the total, remember it lists the total tax levy for that. And, you know, this year it's it's three something, three point something million dollars that, you know, the, ta- the taxpayers have to basically pay back for these overvaluations. And which is like the which interesting is essentially, thing. It's essentially a tax increase on your tax bill that that isn't really accounted for. It as doesn't show increase. up in the any budget anywhere. So basically mm-hmm. the town gets the benefit or and the school districts or whatever districts get the benefit of this extra money, but they don't have to add it to their budget. And when it's time to you know pay the piper, it gets paid through a bond, you know, to, that the county floats. So would would, kind of, would, it, would would the argument, and again to be devil's advocate, would the argument be though from from the the county or, or the town that those taxpayers benefited in previous years from a higher tax um, on on these properties, um, so there was extra revenue there that that you as a homeowner benefited from. So you have to pay that back now. Sure, it's just I, I mean I get that. It's just that it's not in anybody's budget anywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like a backdoor way of getting more money from I don't know. Um, That's really interesting. I'm curious too, Denise, the root of this is part of the issue that commercial, I know in Southampton town, and I'm assuming this is true in other towns, but I, but I'm not a tax attorney and I'm not positive about this. Commercial properties are assessed in a very different way than residential properties. Yeah. I go into Uh, that a little bit in the story. Um, They're, they're, they're assessed initially as cost of construction, but then as time goes on, they're required to assess it, the property at, at for its income production. Right. So, so, so you mentioned Friars Head, the golf club. Those are actually a really great example of where the where the inequities can come because we've had this issue in the Tuckahoe School District with all of the private golf courses that are there. The the value of the land is it's significant, but they're really only taxed. And it's interesting because as private golf clubs, if I'm not mistaken, they're only taxed on like the revenue of what they take in through their clubhouse, like the sale of merchandise and things like that. Right. They, is, could, they can have a million dollar membership fee, but that million dollar membership fee doesn't count toward their income. So that that's where you might get some of the inequities with some of the commercial properties is that um, their tax rates, and I can see how they would they would go to court and say, hey, according to the rules, we're, we're paying way more than we should be. Well, and, uh, you know, Laverne Tenenberg, who's uh, been the chairperson of the Board of Assessors in Riverhead a, a long time, has been an assessor since uh, 1990. 
and is an extremely competent individual. Like, I mean, she just really knows her stuff. And I think, you know, is widely recognized as such. But, um, you know, she points out that the, the vicissitudes of the real estate market and the economy in general um, really uh, wreak havoc on their ability to assess these these properties based on income because, you know, vacant stores and lack of rental income or depressed rental income in times that are hard. And then when property values are skyrocketing, right, like they've been out here um, in this pandemic, they, um, the rental rent escalation clauses, you know, and leases don't keep up with the kind of valuation that's, you know, so they, the, the property owners are like, well, you know, look, we're taking a hit here because the higher the property values go in general for, you know, residential property values, the, the more depressed their their properties appear to be in terms of their, their income generation. Mm. So it's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't um, from an assessor standpoint. And also since it takes into account expenses of operation for these properties, how can they applying kind of like uniform standards that they're given by uh, the county real property tax agency and stuff like that. How can they really accurately figure out what their taxes should be? These guys come in with all their books and records. It's like, here, this is exactly what, you know, we spent. And this is why we didn't make as much money as you think we, we made. I wonder uh, too, if this is, this is a, a COVID impact that those, those incomes and, you know, they, they may have been, lower in the last year or two and that may be being used to go go into court and try and get their taxes lowered but you know i also i also wanted to point out there's a lot of companies out there this is what they do they go to property owners and and go to court for them to to grieve their taxes i know i get around this Mm -hmm. time of year i'll start getting uh mailings all over the place from from companies that that will say that and i also think I'm, you know, it doesn't translate necessarily to, to commercial properties, but residential property owners are so much more aware of the value of their properties now, thanks to Zillow and the constant conversation out here about property values. That I think, I think the grievances. The only problem is most residential properties have been going up so fast. Your your grievances are not likely to succeed because the value of your property is probably less than what what the towns are assessing it at. But it, it demonstrates this whole system is really an inexact science, isn't it? It, it sure seems to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, you talk about the value of your property being assessed uh, higher than or lower than what it's worth. Uh, you know, it depends on how recently you've done a revaluation in the town as yeah. well. Because uh, without a townwide revaluation, I mean, the equalization ratio for Riverhead is like under 12% now. Like, so your, your assessed value is 11.8% of what the estimated market value is, which is kind of, I mean, that in itself opens up a whole other can of worms. So the complication of doing like big box stores too. I can't imagine, you know, you're basically going up against giant corporations in setting the tax rate. And that must be really intimidating. I would think. I I mean, like they, they just all have grieved their taxes and they can do that every three years too. It's like, I confess uh, that that to to Joe's point, to Joe's point, I mean, that's a big, that's a big business for, for a lot of these law firms and companies. And and I think that, you know, that that's part of it, too, not not to well, on a but... basis, Denise, if my next door neighbor grieves and his taxes go down eight hundred dollars, someone else has to make that up. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So the float is still the same. The town still needs the same money. So Firehead goes in and screams and yells about something, grieves it. They get the not just the valuation, but the actual tax bill lowered. Someone else has to then make up the difference. Right. It's not like the town makes less money. And it's going forward, too. I mean, you know. So it's incredibly unfair across the board. Yeah. And and it costs the town money, too, to fight these things. The town has to hire, you know, special counsel because it's a really specialized thing. And, um, you know, I don't know that, you know, what I don't know those numbers yet, but, um, you know, it's not they don't come cheap. I mean, the town just hired two new law firms uh, and a new appraisal firm. Um, that specializes in these commercial appraisals and the other night, actually. And um, they, uh, you know, two, two something, and, and that's cheap for lawyers, like, you know, two, two twenty five an hour um, and one ninety five an hour, that kind of thing. And, you know, 
that's a bargain. That's a bargain rate, they say. Um, <laughs> the so, process is set up to yeah. uh, to provide a lot of income for a lot of attorneys. No for question. Some, I say, yeah. <laughs> I, I have all the way around. I've, I've always been confused by the tax valuation system and how that works. It's 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 just very opaque, and 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 a lot of it. I can't imagine, you know, this is this is part of what we do for a living. And I can't imagine the average homeowner sort of gazing at this system from the outside. And it just it just must seem it must seem just random almost. But it no. isn't. It's like it you said, these, there's a lot of very smart people involved in trying to to make it equitable, equitable. But it's a it's a just tough take a residential street. Uh, look at a residential street in the South Bolton. Look at the first 10 houses on the street. How come each of them are all different? It's. I don't know that you can find a lot of logic. I remember there was a Newsday reporter years ago, uh, Bob Fresco, who was just a really loved these kind of stories, the, the sort of thing that you just see Denise doing. And at some point, he just threw his hands up in Nassau County and said, there's nothing here that makes any sense. It's just chaos. Well, as a new house, like if a new house is built, it's going to be assessed very differently from somebody who like living like in my house for, you know, since 1995, whatever that works out to now. But, um, you know, this this house hasn't been, you know, assessed anew. So you have, as someone pointed out uh, to me in a comment yesterday that, uh, you know, you have a house next door to, I'm paying $20,000 in taxes and the house next door to me is paying $3,500. Like, how is that fair? You know, that's why they need to do revals, but politicians hate revals because, Inevitably, like a third of the town ends up with their tax valuation going up, and right, they're very unhappy, and they yell at people. Well, so, South Southampton Town is is <clears throat> stuck right now. They had to put a a pause on on the annual reevaluations, <clears throat> and then um, that was supposed to expire, and they've extended it because of of everything that happened with with COVID and all these homes selling and the and the prices skyrocketing, and you know and, and that hurts um, people like Denise who have had who have own owned a home for thirty years and have paid a certain amount of taxes and all of a sudden the comparables in their neighborhood are skyrocketing so they're they're you know so they get priced out of their homes you could have people who are are retired on fixed incomes and all of a sudden their you know their taxes double or triple and you know and 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 they they can't afford to live in in the home homestead that they've lived in for you know maybe a couple of generations and and so Southampton town is trying to figure out a couple of different ways to to you know, provide them offsets, um, you know, for for the increases, um, some tax reductions depending on year-round occupancy versus um, you know part-time occupancy, that type of thing. But it's a it's a real struggle, I think. Yeah, I think it frustrates people because it's a theoretical value yeah. increase in your house, which is not on the market. You know, my house isn't for sale, so why should my taxes be going up? Right. Uh, but. This is this is the challenge with with the tax code, no question. Uh, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We are with the Express News Group. Our panel today includes Annette Hinkle, who is the arts and living editor of the Express News Group, Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Uh, another story uh, that just happened this week that does have some real regional impact. Uh, Bill was on Thursday night, the East Hampton Town Board voted to make a big change with the East Hampton Airport. This has been a conversation that's been going on for years. And this is sort of a watershed moment, I think, for East Hampton Airport. At the end of February, uh, what is going to happen thanks to the vote by the East Hampton Town Board on Thursday? So so basically, and I think Mike Wright did a a nice job of explaining it this week, the, the airport's going to close. I mean, it's just going to it's going to shut down on February 28th as a public airport. It's going to reopen on March 3rd as a um, as a private airport owned by the town, owned by the town, owned, owned and operated by the town. Right. Um, but it would it would no longer be under FAA rules and restrictions. So doing that and, and uh, nobody's ever done this before with an airport. So we're going to see how this how it happens. But the FAA is on board and, and everybody, all, all the experts on board saying that this is going to work. And what it's going to do is it's going to allow the town to set a bunch of restrictions on the airport to say that there could only be 
um, certain number of flights per day, certain number of aircraft. You know, the big issue has been the helicopters coming into the airport so they can limit the the the, the number of of uh, helicopter flights coming in and potentially the types of helicopters uh, that can come in. And eventually it would, it would, as the technology improves, even they could even say just uh, electric powered um, helicopters can, can come in or, or, or planes or whatever. Um, so we're going to see how this goes. They've been talking about it for, for a while, um, but, but now it's actually, it's, it's going to happen again. They're set to close on, on February 28th, just for three days. And, and that's just kind of a, a token closure, I think, to, you know, to, to be able to fill out all the paperwork and say, you know, we've, we've shut down this public airport and now we're opening this private airport. Um, obviously the airport's not going to change, but. But what's interesting, Bill, is that the pilots, uh, the small plane pilots, the folks who operate, recreationally out of the airport um, have said that their concern is that the town voting to close for three days, that opponents of the airport, and there are folks out there who want the airport shut down and they are not satisfied with this temporary shutdown and this change. And they are not there. That's just not good enough. They're worried that they will go to court and perhaps win the ability to stop the airport from reopening at all. And I wonder if that's a, a legitimate concern. I, I think that's that certainly is is something that's been been talked about, but it sounds like the town has its ducks in a row, and three days is an awful quick time to try to get some TRO approved or or whatever. I would imagine, and I'm just speculating that that's not going to happen. What you'll see is after the fact, after it reopens. Um, you know, then you'll see some lawsuits um, filed against the town. Certainly, this is all going to be litigated because this is the first time anybody's done anything like this. So that gives, you know, uh, you know, attorneys for the different groups the opportunity to come in and, and say this, you know, this is bogus and you can't do it and you should return it to a public airport, that that type of thing. I don't I don't see any kind of TRO sticking, not for long anyway. So then you also have the uh, like the the blade operators and those companies, those, those people are not going to be very happy no. um, if they are banned from flying in there. So you're going to have lawsuits on that side as well. Sure. And then there's the whole question of whether that air traffic ends up going somewhere else. You know, mm -hmm. um, do you see more seaplanes? Do you see um, helipads being built in places where they weren't? Do you see Montauk little airport getting overrun with all the air traffic that um, East Hampton is going to reject? So, And there's also, there's also been talk about uh, more helipads being built on some of the private estates and, and maybe seaplanes landing in, in some of the waters. Um, we've seen a little bit of that, but not a lot of that, but it may push some of that traffic. But, you know, Steve, th this is a regional question because one of, the, yeah. one of the reasons for this is that for years, the airport has been under FAA uh, They've had to follow FAA rules because they took FAA grants. Those grants expired in September and it gave them this opportunity. But while they continued to operate as a public airport, they were still under those restrictions. Now they would be able to write new rules as far as even things like uh, approaches. And that's where it, this becomes a regional issue because folks on the North Fork uh, have been complaining for years about the helicopter traffic going over the North Fork coming from the city. Um, this might give the airport an opportunity in the town an opportunity to draw some new uh, rules that that can start to limit those kinds of things and set some rules for how aircraft come into the airport. Yeah, it's, it seems like this change in East Hampton is just kind of shifting the problem or just opening up, you know, you close one set of problems and then you open up a whole new set of problems. The North Fork has obviously been, a lot of residents um, have been really upset about the helicopter noise and the routes they take. And there's local committees trying to figure out new routes for them. And this has gone on for quite a long time. And just recently, there was some concern expressed that if the East Hampton Airport closed, as it's, as it's about to do and go private, that it would put pressure on the little airport that's in Mattituck, um, which is essentially a, a couple of nice runways, but it's not been an active airport. Um, you know, what does it mean? Is it going to happen over here? And Scott Russell has shot that down immediately. So it just seems like it might just be pushing the problem, as Annette was saying, maybe to Montauk, maybe to West Hampton. But I don't think you're going to see anything like that over here. I don't think you're going to see 
of the ZBA or the town board or the planning board allowing people to land their helicopters on their estates. Um, but it will, of course, raise the whole helicopter route question all over again. Oh, so in, the, it, I, in, in Mike's story, I mean, he spoke to um, he spoke to the uh, president of Flyblade, which is an app based flight booking company who said, you know, who said basically that that any closure is going to have a drastic uh, consequences for residents of Southampton, West Hampton, Montauk, Sag Harbor and, and other parts of East Hampton. And I would imagine the North Shore, too. And then a very telling statement, um, she said, and, and this is Melissa Tomkeel. Please understand that people are not going to stop flying if you close the airport. And I think that that's true. People are going to find a way to come in. These companies like Blade are going to find places to to land and, and to bring people in. And it's it's going to spread out that problem if East Hampton limits the number of, of flights coming in. Um, but it, it, again, it gives it gives the town a lot more control. Um, particularly with, with their facility of, of what's happening there. And, and then I guess spreads out the, the responsibility or the issue. And that I alluded to it, but there's, there's a whole group of folks out there who would like to see the airport closed altogether and, and turned into uh, a park facility, something like that, 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 that uh, position is out there and fairly vocal. I don't see that happening personally because, um, you know, there is a, a tradition of like small single engine aircraft using that airport and local aviation enthusiasts. And, um, you know, I just I just think that there's just too many interests in that airport staying open that um, I, I don't I don't see closing the airport entirely as a realistic and keeping it closed as a realistic long term solution. You know, um, and I, I think the airport's been had a commercial element from the very beginning, like from the time it opened, uh, there was a commercial transportation element where folks were, were coming in. You know, it, it's not just for recreational flyers. It, it really right. was a transportation hub. And, almost and there's the, local the businesses that do operate out of there, like sound right. aircraft. And, you know, there actually is, a, a you know, you can charter planes to specific, you know, nearby regions. I know people charter planes to like Martha's Vineyard or Block Island or Nantucket. And um, yeah, I think that it's it's going to be interesting to see this, but I don't I don't see permanent closure as something that seems like a realistic option. And I'll let me take Bill's devil's advocate position. Uh, the guys from Blade say, oh, well, that traffic's going to go somewhere. Well, I would point out that the helicopter traffic from the city is less than 10 years of a phenomenon that didn't exist really except in the very minimum 10 years ago and and I still think the number of aircraft is it's it's you know neighbors would say it's abusive and and I think the number of aircraft probably is but it's still a fairly small number of people that we're talking about and I think if they don't have the option of flying out by helicopter there's a perfectly good train system and there's the the cars. Now, I think what we may see and what I think is also interesting here is if Gabreski Airport in West Hampton becomes the, the overflow that now that the helicopter companies start to look at, at Gabreski, it's going to only contribute to the traffic problem because they'll then have to get into the to the trade parade and head all the way east to East Hampton uh, and Southampton uh, no. in traffic. So, but it would eliminate a lot of noise over the North Fork and some communities on the South Fork. Um, I don't think the West Hampton residents are going to be real happy with it if, if that's the way it shakes out. And then there were also all of those companies that wanted to run fast ferries from the East River to Sag Harbor. And those were shut down year after year after year. So um, get those ferries going again. You could get, you know, nice two hour cruise out from. Manhattan or whatever it takes on a boat. Joe, Joe, to play devil's advocate to your devil's advocate, I, I think that um, those the people that are flying out on helicopters aren't going to take trains. And and what you're going to what what you could see is those people that are flying out on helicopters and and plopping down you know a, a grand for for a seat or however much it is now more in in some cases they're going to find other places to go. And, and, and that could that they can fly to because it's it's a convenience that they can afford. And why would they get on a uh, why would they get on a train or why would they you know take a, a car that's going to get stuck in traffic for four hours um, to get to their destination when they can go to the Jersey Shore or somewhere else 
Um, and, you know, and, and it could have a, a real impact on, on the economy out here. I think one of the variables here that we don't talk about enough is that Southampton Village has a helipad that's fairly, uh, it's used fairly regularly in the summertime uh, by folks who are commuting in and out. Uh, but obviously, I think East Hampton Airport is the epicenter of that traffic. That Southampton Village helipad could become a, a real popular place in the summertime, depending on how, how all this shakes out. And it is, I mean, you know, potential sense of revenue for the village, which would, which would, you know, they could charge. I, I got it, but those those metal lane neighbors aren't aren't going to. <laughs> Where is that helipad? It's, it is on Meadow Lane. It's out. It's actually out in the estate section, ironically enough. And it's the people you know, who are on the helicopters generally flying to that neighborhood. Yeah, so is exactly. that privately owned that helipad or is that's that? Owned, no, that's owned by the village, village property. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Like that. And I mean, I think we talk about this issue sometimes as if there's a wild west attitude that that seaplanes could come out and land anywhere they want and helicopters and can come out and none of that is really true. There are a lot of restrictions. Um, for for instance, we're we're in the process of sort of digging into this question for an upcoming story. But in Sag Harbor, for instance, one of, one of the things that's been thrown out is, oh, there's going to be all this new traffic, air traffic in Sag Harbor, maybe um, people landing seaplanes on the water and coming in through the village. For the most part, I don't know that the village will allow that, and I don't think the infrastructure is in place that would even permit seaplanes to do that. The seaplanes can land in some areas, but they they don't just have carte blanche to land wherever they want. And the big thing is getting the passengers from the planes to the land. Right. Absolutely. Um, there's, you know, they would have to contract with the villager to, to be able to actually offload passengers unless they wanted to put them in the Zodiac and store on the beaches, like, you know, <laughs> you know apocalypse now. <laughs> Where the where the North Fork is concerned with the helicopter traffic, I think things would be permanently much improved if they would just fly at a higher altitude. I yeah. mean, you know, they fly over. I mean, sometimes they seem like they're like right over the top of the tree line. Uh, they come over our house. I mean, it's all up and down the North Fork. They come up our house in Riverhead like that. People complain, you know, Aquabog and Calverton, you know. Wherever they, the pilots decide to cross, even though they did agree to a, a route, you know, they don't abide one, by it. One issue and, is that the town, the town agrees with you and they've only been able to strike um, deals with the pilots to do it voluntarily because of the FAA yeah. rules. Maybe this change will will change that. That's something we're going to have to keep an eye on moving forward. Definitely. You know, because they're not as obnoxious when they're flying higher. You right. know? Absolutely. Um, the flip side of that, by the way, is that it can be unsafe for a helicopter to come in sort of vertically to an airport. They they don't like to come in straight straight in. I'm told uh, that can be a little dangerous. So complicated issue, and it's about to get more complicated uh, with the vote on Thursday by the East Hampton Town Board. We are out of time. We're out of time for uh, our conversation this week on Behind the Headlines. I want to thank our guest Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and our own Annette Hinkle of the Express News Group. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bill Sutton, my co-host, also of the Express News Group. Always fun. I'm Joe Shaw. We will be back here next week for another conversation uh, about uh, what's going on Thanks, behind the headlines. Thanks, guys. Great show, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye.